Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And, and we, we want, want you to have heard of Aeschylus' Suppliants. So these two nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to... Suppliants and Chill! Unlike our previous podcast, Suppliants and Chill is a single episode on Aeschylus's most obscure play. This play highlights the tragically timeless themes of forced marriage and xenophobia. This special episode is produced in conjunction with the Suppliants Project, which is co-produced by Theater of War Productions, Northwestern University, University of Chicago, and University of California, Irvine. First, we're going to give you a summary, and then we're going to interview fancy people about it. On this episode, our fancy people are Brian Dorries, David Zayas, and Dorina Castillo. If you don't need a summary, feel free to skip ahead. Prologue. The play opens in Argos. Wait, didn't we do this one already? Nope. Different play. Same Argos. I guess all roads lead to Argos, huh? Anyway, the play opens in Argos with a chorus of maiden suppliants led by their father, Danaeus, and their handmaidens. I'll carry olive branches to indicate suppliant status. Okay, but not like a small group of ladies going to lunch. We're talking like 50 of them. So they've just arrived in Argos and are at Zeus's altar. The chorus prays to Zeus for several pages, and in this prayer we learn that... 1. They fled their native land because they were promised in marriage to Aegyptus' sons. 2. Danaeus is their father. Hold up. This dude fathered 50 women? Same mother? Biologically? Different mothers, same father, as the mythology goes. The mothers of each daughter, along with the daughter's names, are recorded in a work by someone known as Pseudo-Apollodorus. I love it when you talk nerdy to me. Three, the Danaids, the daughter of Danaos, ask that Argos welcome them. Four, the men they are supposed to marry are on their way to find them, and the suppliants want them destroyed and, quote, dragged to death before they set foot in the land of Argos. Five, these aforementioned men are their cousins. Lovely. Then the women begin to dance while they continue their prayer. Episode 1. Wait, I thought this podcast only had one episode. No, no, this play is structured into episodes instead of scenes. In the episodes, characters interact and the chorus is represented by a chorus leader, who speaks on behalf of the suppliants. Danaeus, the father of all these women, stands by the altar and addresses his daughters. In this address, he declares that the men the women are fleeing are on their way to take them back to their native home. He also instructs his daughters to remain by the altar so they can be protected by Zeus, sanctuary style, and to be submissive. Ew. Because they're in a new land as refugees fleeing forced marriage. Wow. The world has been horrible to immigrants since at least the 6th century BCE. Yeah, humans can suck. Proof that we've needed immigration reform and re-education for a couple thousand years! Thanks, ancient Greece. Danaeus ends his spiel by saying, turn plan into deed. Who's he talking to? His daughters? Zeus? And what's the plan? They haven't decided anything. Is the plan just to stay put and be submissive? 
I think the plan is that they're entering the city as suppliants, a position which has specific international rights, as it were, in the Greek world. These rights were not really rights, more like customary niceties that were supposed to be extended to guests under the protection of Zeus Hikesios, aka protector of suppliants. So the plan is just to behave according to these customs. Okay, got it. Danaeus calls, quote, upon this bird sacred to Zeus. Hold the heck up. There was a bird? When did it appear? Has it been there the entire time? What kind of bird? Probably an eagle, or maybe a vulture. Sometimes the Greeks use those two interchangeably. Okay, so basically a big predatory bird. Cool, carry on. After the bird, he calls on a few other gods besides Almighty Zeus to witness their pleas for safety. First, Apollo. Then, when the chorus leader asks who they should call on next, Danaeus is like, I'll give you a hint. Here is a trident, emblem of the god. Who is Poseidon? Correct. Aren't the stakes a little too high? Danaeus, why are you turning women's fate into a game show? Then they invoke Hermes, because it wouldn't be an Aeschylus play without a Hermes invocation. Danaeus asks the gods if a man can marry without the will of the bride. And, out of nowhere, Pelasgos, new, new character, character alert. alert, that's the king of Argos, by the way, enters with his attendants. He asks the chorus who they are and what they want, while noting that they dress and look different, so they must be foreigners. Great, we're still harping on that? He introduces himself as the ruler of the land, expounds upon his lineage, and asks that everyone tell him the story of their lineage. But keep it short, because, quote, we're not fond of idle talk. Oh my god, same. The chorus leader says that their lineage is from Argos, but Pelasgos asks for more information because they don't look like Argives. Argives? Isn't that a vegetable? <laughs> no, it's what people from Argos are called. Eh, it's all Greek to me. The chorus leader proceeds to recount their genetic history all the way back to when Zeus cheated on his goddess wife, that's Hera by the way, with the mortal Io. Then Hera got jealous and turned Io into a cow. Zeus still found her attractive, so he had sex with her anyway. Moo-la-la. Please tell me you didn't. I'm so sorry, truly. I apologize. It gets worse. The cow got pregnant by Zeus. Ew, I, I can't even make a joke. That- ew. And four generations down from the half-cow, half-god atrocity born from that union came Danaeus, the father of these fifty women, and his brother Aegyptus, the father of the unwanted suitors. So in conclusion, they are Argives. Wait, what? How is that the conclusion? That's the problem with some Greek tragedy. They expect you to know the mythology like the back of your hand, so they'll tell you a story with a gigantic hole in the middle and assume you'll fill in the gap. You wanna help fill that gap there? Io was the daughter of Inachus, who was the first king of Argos. Oh. Okay. And according to this convoluted story we're all supposed to follow, the suppliants are descendants of Io. Yeah, the point they're trying to make is that they're entitled to protection in Argos because they're descendants of Argive royalty. Still confused? We hear you. And we want to hear from you, so feel free to slide into our DMs. Then Pelasgos is like, so what did you come here for again? Good question. Anyone else lost track after the whole cow thing? The chorus leader explains that they seek protection from the sons of Aegyptus, who are on their way to force the women into marriage. Pelasgos mentions that accommodating this request would inevitably start a war, and the chorus leader replies that, quote, justice shields the man who fights for her. Eventually, Pelasgos agrees to help, but says they'll need the support of the citizens of Argos, so he's going to teach Danaeus how to speak in a way that will get their pity. So how has he been speaking? Does he speak like his great-great-grandma the cow? Just another xenophobic attempt at othering foreigners. Lovely. 
He asks the suppliants to stay put and continue praying. Pelasgos' attendants escort Danaeus to the city's altars, and Pelasgos leaves shortly after. Stazimon 1. That's a song, by the way, and the one implies there are multiple. Note that in the Stazimons, the chorus sings and dances together as a group. Stazimons occur in between episodes. In this particular Stazimon, the chorus basically dances and sings for a few pages. They pray to Zeus to be taken care of and repeat their lineage and connection to him. So are they praying to Zeus or guilting him into helping them? Uh, a little bit of both. Episode 2. Danaeus comes back to tell the suppliant women that, after hearing his spiel, the people of Argos have agreed to protect them from anyone trying to force them out. Stazimon 2. The chorus pours libations to the gods. Mainly Zeus, but Ares, the god of war, makes an appearance in the prayers. This time, they pray for the successful bearing of fruit from the earth and that the cows may bear calves. This is probably an oblique reference to Io. Great, we're back to the cow stooping. Basically, they pray for the health of their new land. Episode 3. Danaeus announces that he sees the ships of their enemies approaching. The men are coming! The women are terrified, but Danaeus tells them to stay strong and reminds them that the citizens of Argos have vowed to protect them. And then he leaves. Stazimon 3. The chorus prays to Zeus for protection and confesses their fears of the men approaching. Episode 4. The Herald of the Sons of Aegyptus enters with an entourage of armed thugs. The Herald's arrival signals that the ships have docked and the moment the suppliants feared has arrived. Reminder, the Sons of Aegyptus are the men coming to take the suppliant women and force them into marriage. Oh, and in case you forgot, the suppliants and their prospective husbands are first cousins. Yep, still ew. The Herald announces the arrival of the Sons of Aegyptus and threatens to drag the women out if they don't go willingly. Hold up. This one dude is going to drag out 50 women on his own? Does this herald have some crazy strength or just huge balls? Well, the armed dudes he walked in with are probably going to help out. But yeah, this herald clearly thinks highly of himself. The women refuse to go with the herald and a struggle ensues. In that moment, King Pelasgus enters and demands the fighting stop. He reprimands the men for not knowing how to behave. He says, quote, lay a hand on them and you'll howl with pain. And then he tells them to yeet. What's yeet? That's how the cool kids are saying get out of there. I don't know, just like, okay, yeah. The herald says he'll leave and report to Aegyptus' sons, and he asks for the king's name, to which King Pelasgos replies, You'll know soon enough, now scram! He does, along with his armed bros. The chorus leader thanks King Pelasgos and says, Although you now welcome us kindly, people are quick to fault foreigners. Woof. Good thing times have changed 2,000 years later, am I right? On that unfortunately timeless note, the king exits along with his peeps. Wait, he has peeps? When did his peeps get there? Were they always there? Anyone who's anyone in the ancient world has peeps, Sarah. Speaking of peeps, remember the handmaidens? Nope. They've been there from the beginning of the play. They're the suppliant's peeps slash servants who have been silent the entire time. Oh, yeah. Danaeus the suppliant's father, enters as King Pelasgos exits. He lectures his offspring about the importance of not bringing shame to him. He says there, quote, At the age that turns men's eyes, ripe fruit is hardest to guard, for men will covet and plunder, even birds and beasts will ravage it. And why not? Um, because you, perhaps? 
I feel like we've just heard the ancient Greek version of boys will be boys. He ends this charming spiel by saying that they have the freedom to live wherever they like, but please don't bring any shame to daddy by getting raped. Aw, doesn't that just warm the cockles of your misogynist heart? The chorus leader pledges that they won't stray from their path. Exodus. This serves as a kind of epilogue slash dance party. Everybody performs a dance as they exit off stage. Picture an ancient Greek conga line, if you will. Yes, but they're also telling you the conclusion of the story at the same time. The exodus is confusing. You know, like the rest of the play. The chorus splits into two hemi-choruses. One hemi-chorus represents the Danaids, who are praying and celebrating their escape from their violent potential husbands, while the other group is either one, their handmaidens, or two, a group of Argive citizens. Scholars disagree on their identity, and unfortunately, the one medieval manuscript that preserves this play doesn't tell us which option is correct. Either way, the second hemi-chorus keeps interjecting into the celebratory prayers of the Danaids that this story isn't over yet, and tries to persuade them to temper their enthusiasm, because they're probably going to end up having to marry their cousins anyway. Wait, is that it? Yep, that's the end of the play. What happens next? Unfortunately, the play just sort of ends. A reason for this could be that it's the first play in a tetralogy that told the entire saga of the Danaids. The following plays are the Egyptians, the Danaids, and the Amiani. Unfortunately, all of the three remaining plays in the tetralogy have been lost, so we only have educated guesses and fragments to help determine their plots. In the Egyptians, that's the second play, the sons of Egyptus, those are the men who the Danaids or suppliant women were running away from, go to war with Argos. Argos loses, and the Danaids are forced to marry the sons of Egyptus, as if they had never fled and the first play we just summarized had never happened. On their wedding night, encouraged by their father, 49 of the 50 Danaids kill their husbands. Hypermestra, the 50th Danaid, falls in love with her forced-upon husband, Lysias, and decides not to kill him. Aww, isn't that nice? We know even less about what happens in the Danaids. The only part of the play that has been preserved is a fragment of a speech by Aphrodite in which she approves of Hypermestra's loyalty to her husband. We have no idea how the play ends. Or how it begins, or what happens in the middle. No matter what happens, the mythology tells us that Lysias and Hypermestra become the progenitors of a long line of Argive kings and heroes, including both Perseus and Heracles. We have even less information about the fourth play, the Amiani. We do know, through other sources of the myth, that Amiani is one of the daughters of Danaeus. And one day, as a young girl, she was hunting and threw a dart meant for a deer but missed and hit a sleeping satyr instead. This is probably the moment to tell you that satyrs were humanoid creatures with the torso and head of a human, but the lower half of the body was a two-legged goat. Oh, and fun fact, they were often depicted with horns, but always depicted with gigantic erect phalluses. Anyway, the satyr wakes up and, depending upon the version of the myth, he either tries to rape Amuni or tries to force her to marry him. Those are the only two options. Satyrs were often buffoonish in myth, but they could also be violent and downright unpleasant. It's likely this version of the play chose the forced marriage option, since forced marriage is the theme of the tetralogy. Anyway, so she calls out to Poseidon, the god of the sea, and he rescues her. And they all lived happily ever after? That's our best guess. All right. 
Time for the exit conga line? Time for the exit conga line. Today, we're sitting with Brian Dorries, the Artistic Director of the Theatre of War and the Director of the Suppliance Project. Actor David Zayas, who's best known for his portrayal of the role of Angel Batista on the show Dexter, and performs in the Suppliance Project, and Garifuna performer Darina Castillo, who also performs in the Suppliance Project. Brian Dorries is an award-winning New York-based writer, director, and translator who currently serves as Artistic Director of Theatre of War Productions a company that presents dramatic readings of seminal plays and texts to frame community conversations about pressing issues of public health and social justice. Dory's books include The Theatre of War, What Ancient Greek Tragedies Can Teach Us Today, The Odyssey of Sergeant Jack Brennan, and look out for his upcoming publication of Oedipus Trilogy in the fall of 2021. For more information about his work, please visit theaterofwar.com. Darina Castillo is a New York City-based Garifuna performer and educator who currently volunteers with the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs and CUNY Citizenship Now, which provides free, high-quality, and confidential immigration law services, helping individuals and their family on their path to citizenship, and, in addition, informing immigrants about various city services available to them. Until her retirement in 2018, Darina had been employed by the City of New York within several agencies in different capacities supervising various units, as well as as an administrative secretary to several commissioners. David Zayas is an actor best known for his role as Angel Batista on the psychological drama Dexter. He currently stars on the Hulu series Shut Eye. His other television credits include appearances on shows like St. George, New York Undercover, Law and & Order, and NYPD Blue. You can also catch him on the remake of the movie musical Annie opposite Jamie Foxx and Cameron Diaz. He has also starred in theater productions, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Anna in the Tropics on Broadway. The Suppliance is a somewhat obscure and alien-seeming play, even among Greek tragedies. But the distance we get from that alienness also provides the audience perspective. So we wanted to ask, why the Suppliance? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, I, I when I worked, set, set out to work on the translation I was inspired by this idea that um, of doing performance of the play at borders. Um, it takes place in a, the liminal space of a border between um, what the the edge of ancient Argos, um, and uh, and at that border is a sacred space where there are temples to the local gods, and within that sacred liminal space, fifty women appear with laurel branches you know, singing their songs and prayers, asking for asylum and refuge because of forced marriage and domestic violence. And these 50 women uh, come to this border asking for compassion and to be treated as human beings. And um, the play doesn't seem strange to me at all. It seems to be something that's happening in our borders in the United States and borders all over the world. And in our so-called sanctuary cities and in our cities that aren't sanctuaries. I remember when we went to Brooklyn and you guys were doing... Oh, we were doing Antigone, Antigone and Ferguson. Yeah, you came and saw you. And I, I was so... I got so overwhelmed because I said, no, we could do this in our culture, in the Garifuna culture too, because we went through the same scenarios, same scenes. You know, they 
the people just struggling, the people walk, being walked over, the people wanting to come to America for a better life. And yes, we have our culture. So I decided to talk to you. I said, Brian, yes, we could do this. Let's see how we could work on it. And yes, you said, okay, let's try it. And oh my goodness, you saw the outcome. <laughs> cool. And so then um, I'm wondering for listeners who may not have the cultural background, I'm wondering if Dorina, you could talk a little bit about, um, about Garifuna music and, uh, and, and its performance. Yes, we have um, different types of music. There's one, the punta, that's the most popular one, punta, whereby people just move their butt left and right along with the, you know, beating of the drums. So that's the most popular one. Then we have the hugga hugga, more slower. You know, they do it so, and then we have the um, the punta, the hugga hugga. Then we have the wanalago. That's when, um, you know, everybody, that's when the slaves were going to their masters and they dance for attraction, to get their attraction. So it's, and they wear this colorful outfit and they just be jumping. I mean, it's really a unique dance, really. And surprisingly, even though the Garifuna people comes from, we have Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, um, Nicaragua. We all have the same similar, even though we, we're in different places. That's, that's interesting, even in Yurume, and, uh, which is St. Vincent. So what we've been doing now, we've been like visiting our motherland, which is St. Vincent, so that the uh, Vincentian, they familiarize themselves with the, that, to know that, yes, Garifuna doors still exist because for some reason it's dying over there, even though that should have been our motherland. So now we're having trips over there to make sure that, yes, yes, you guys are over there, but Garifuna still exists. So we go over there, they have people like, um, James Lavelle, Eleanor Bullock, who would go there, they teach the children their language, so that St. Vincent knows that, yes, you guys, we still have Garifuna people there. You guys, that's the homeland. So it's never, Garifuna is never going to die, no matter what. We will make it, you know, it's never going to go extinct. That's beautiful. You know, and I have to say that when I watched the um, the trailer on the Theatre of War mm. Productions website, um, and hearing what various audience members had to say or participants. I mean, I couldn't quite tell who, you know, who was who, which was part of the beauty of it. It was just a group of people experiencing this and hearing what they had to say about what they had experienced and watched. I mean, I became really emotional. There's something about, you know, the, I think as an immigrant, that experience of sort of being othered has never left me. And, um, and I think that that's, it's a unique, it's unique, but it's also very common kind of experience and there's something about the sort of contract that you get into when you go to a new place and when you you know and, and it's sort of unspoken and you know I think particularly of that moment when the women are told be submissive when you're in this new land um and you know and then you've got King Pelasco's who asks you know where are they from you don't look like you're from around here how how was that navigated and I pose that question to all of you so in rehearsal, because of the Griffina diaspora, uh, we spoke in three different languages, English, Spanish, and Griffina. And navigating that was not easy um, because the community itself is fractured in all these ways by virtue of its exodus and diaspora. One of the most dominant forms of communication in the process of creating the piece and in the piece itself became music and most critically dance. 
dance became a language that transcended all of all of these differences. So that when we did the Wanaragua, which we inserted, which is the war dance that Darina was referring to, or, or rhythm and dance that, um, uh, and we inserted it in a chorus where the women were fearful that they were about to be uh, abducted by the men, who, their husbands or their so-called cousins who'd come for them. Um, we had young women dancing the Wanaragua in our production, uh, which has not been done uh, often uh, within Griffina culture. It, it's already another inversion that we're in, in, in sort of inserting into. And so a lot of the young men who knew the dance who were of Griffina culture couldn't sit idly when young women were dancing Wanaragua. Uh, they jumped to their feet and they started dancing Wanaragua. And all of a sudden, everyone was dancing. And um, and for us, that's what the moment we're looking for. That's amazing. Watching it, I I I was not not dancing. <laughs> I'm just gonna put that out there. You know, the play is also about assimilation, mm -hmm. and at the end of the play, the women who are now being so the play is as much about women at a border seeking asylum from forced marriage as it is about the struggle that happens within the city about whether to accept them. And part of the reasons we wanted to do the play was actually to create a space where people who have fears of immigrants and what, what immigrants might bring to their community, that they can come to the experience and rather than dehumanizing or othering, they can just acknowledge their fears and, 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 we, can, and we can have a conversation that's based in humanity, not in, not in distance, that's based in proximity. And, and, um, and that, that, that's still the goal for this project, whether we do it at Borders or we do it on Zoom. Um, the final part of the play is about what happens when they go into the into Argos and they start asking questions about they're, they're actually given a kind of foreign national status at the end of the play. They're, they're, they're right. not they're not citizens. Right. And they're not we're not saying they're Greek, but they're protected. And the war, the Greeks go to war on their behalf and Pelasgus loses his life. For the choice he makes mm -hmm. um, to, to do to do really the right thing um, by way of these suppliants. But and so there's also this deep question of at what cost that also needs to be discussed in a democracy rather than pushed to the side so that it then emerges in sort of racialized or, you know, discriminatory rhetoric. Like, really, let's talk about our policies. And can we hold all of this in the same space? Can we have this conversation? And can people express themselves? I, I think it's impossible in the spaces that, that the Griffina helped us create to 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 dehumanize the uh, anyone in the room, everyone is just touched by what has just ex they've just experienced, and so from that place of a shared humanity, everyone got to dance, everyone got to be part of this experience. Can we start a conversation with humility uh, and reverence, um, and and that at the core of it is also about what is gained and what is lost when assimilation takes place. And so that's why the Griffin story, it's not, it's not one way, it's cyclical. Now they're going back to St. Vincent and they're teaching, they're keeping right. their culture and their language alive. And if the production in some way keeps the language alive uh, or elevates it to another platform where more people can experience what's so special about this culture, then it's we'll, a huge victory. Yeah, it's a victory on every level. Um, so it's one of the most exciting collaborations we've ever engaged in. Yeah, the way I feel, I mean, it's it, to me is a, a, a series of breakthroughs when you're either performing it or you're listening to the conversation afterwards, I found myself having many breakthroughs on, of understanding that 
um, that's why I like to, I love it when Brian calls me to do the same project more than one time because the first time always informs me to give a better interpretation or to have a better understanding of what I say the second time. But then something new always comes even in the second time and the third time. I, it's just a series of breakthroughs that, that I'm able then to open my mind and understand uh, different cultures or, or just a different world that uh, we've been closed off to. And as and and I think th these kinds of experiences and and th it didn't happen. It wasn't me looking for it. It just happens. The breakthroughs just happen. I'm like, oh, like I had no idea. Now I understand, and it helps you understand other uh, how to process other situations that are happening now in 2021. And um, so yeah, it, to me, it's it's a series of breakthroughs that I get. Even when I've just watched the performance, not being a part of it, it's it's a, it's really fascinating and it's it's so so helpful. What a poetic way of describing it! Before the series of breakthroughs with this project, when um, you know when asked to come on board, what was the thing that made you go, "Yes, I want to do this"? Uh, just the 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 fear factor of it. Uh, okay. When when uh, Brian, I think the first thing he asked me to read was I think it was Ajax uh, I I don't know anything uh, I never studied the you know the Greek plays or Shakespeare or anything so the the very fear of it like what am I getting into uh, is what drove me to it um, and that fear stays with you After, every time he goes I got this new project and I'm like fear so I'm gonna do it <laughs> I'm hungry for more and more and more because it's not about, oh, you got a gig as an actor. It's about dealing with an experience that either I was ignorant about or that I wasn't educated about or that, you know, uh, maybe I thought I was like a little above that, which I'm not. And that always brought me back down to earth. And it's, it's helped me as much uh, in my career and in my life. In, in in processing certain things. You know, I've got kids, grandkids, and I observe these experiences. I go, I think I saw that in Antigone and Ferguson, this, this, this moment right here. And so it helps you just open up your mind to accept many things that just because of knowledge you didn't think about before. Mm -hmm. Wow. What an enriching experience. I was interested in the question of interpretation, since we only have one version of this text uh, coming from the manuscript tradition, and uh, there's a question about how the exodus happens, like what the two hemichoruses are. It sounds from what you were saying earlier about the dialogue between the um, citizens and the the suppliants that you decided to interpret the hemichorus as splitting into the the um, people from Argos and the Garifuna singers. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, how you chose that? Was it just part of your theme and uh, how it, it plays out in the Exodus? Because I didn't get to see any of that in the trailer. So I'd, I'd love to see what your interpretation was so, like. So yeah, it's still a work in progress. I mean, we actually didn't um, go all the way through the end of the, the final um, Exodus in the in the text that we performed at the uh, premiere in 2019. But I do have, uh, we do have the intention. Um, it's just not something we've had the opportunity to really do yet, 
But to answer your question, in my translation and in my thinking about it, and it, which is still f forming, um, I, I do like that tension of because, of course, that's what we're modeling for the audience as well. Uh, a, right. sort of a, a dialogue between uh, people who are, um, you know, from another land and coming into a country with the people from that country who are receiving them or not receiving them, and um, and offering them a kind of uh, foreign national status that isn't citizenship. And they're interrogating what this will mean for them. And this dialogue, I think, is what we're after in the discussion that follows. I've been curious to ask about the, the theme of forced marriage that is, you know, in, in this piece. And, you know, it's one of those interesting, like, tragically timeless themes that that kind of is sometimes in the mainstream and then it lives in the fringes of our consciousness. It sort of like oscillates between um, the mainstream and, and not. And I'm curious to know just how... How did you approach that topic uh, in the room? Yeah, if you notice there are similarities, no matter which way you go, all people go through the same thing. And what's so sad, it's still currently happening because look at our brothers and sisters from Honduras, what they're going through, Honduras, Guatemala. You know, they are still at that border. Even children, they are suffering, trying to come to get a better life. I mean, would you think 2021, this is still happening? Um, but in spite of all that, Garifuna people tend to you know, they make do. They'll do whatever they need to do to make it work for them. And even though they're going through a lot of changes, they sing. They, whatever they, you know, they have a song for whatever changes they're going through. If they are sad, yes, they have a song for that. A lot beating with the drums, so that really uplifts them. So that sadness and that poverty, the drums and just being together as together with the food, like you said, that really uplifts, uplifts the girlfriend and people. And then another thing is, like, for example, in the show, we start with Tagera Gedua Wayuna. That means we are coming from our motherland, from our ancestors' land. Then we went into the second song, which was Witibiyabi. We're happy to see you. So in spite of the struggles, yes, we are still happy to see, oh. you know, yeah, that's, that's things like that. And at the end, when um, we just dance ourselves off the stage and the audience just participated. That in, again, that shows that in spite of everything, yes, we'll survive. Governor people will survive because we do our farming. We, you know, the food. I mean, Brian had a touch of the food. He was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. So, you know, we survive one way or the other. What's one thing that you would like everyone to know about the project? I mean, I think what makes this project special is that um, it, when you experience it, it, it feels uncannily familiar. Um, and I think that's because the fears that that immigrants and, and also asylum seekers feel and also the fears that citizens within a democracy in particular who are debating or concerned about their immigration policies feel that these are... I mean, these are front and center in the play, and they they resonate with 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 these emotions today. And we have to create spaces where we can get to the complexity of it and get past the dehumanization that becomes a de facto position um, of those who don't want to have the, the their hard conversation. Um, so I think it's an invitation for anybody who's been touched by this issue, and that's really all all human beings in the United States, but also globally as well to um, to engage with each other by way of this ancient story, 
Darina will be holding it down for the Gryphona. We won't have the music. She will be performing one of the chorus members' parts. Um, but um, I don't know, Darina, what makes it special to you? Yeah, I mean, one one thing that um, it made it special to me is like, okay, you sometimes you think you're all alone. No, a lot of people are going through the same thing. You're never alone. And what I, I and also you notice that we had people from Guatemala, Honduras. Um, there was somebody from Saint Vincent. People who were born here still sharing one Garifuna duo. Hmm. You know, the young, the old, all of them were able to come together because they're familiar with the history and we just we, everybody knows what we've been going through no matter where you come from so you notice everyone was happy to be together no matter where you come from well on that note thank you both so so much yeah for doing thank this. you so much we're Our very pleasure. excited to to watch this digital version um next week and can't wait to watch you know, the, the Belize iteration. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> we'll get ready for, for, for that exodus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll be there. Sound engineering for Suppliants and Chill was done by J.J. Margolis, with theme music composed by Luke Shepard and artwork by Nick Adams. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of illuminations at the University of California, Irvine, with a very special thanks to Professor Julia Lupton, our forever queen, and a huge thank you to Professor Vinnie Oliveri, who pointed us in the right direction when Lit and Chill was just an idea over cocktails. Mm-hmm.